Hey guys, welcome to Rank and Vile, the podcast where we attempt to rank every single horror movie ever made. And this is Ryan, and this week uh, we have with us a Hugo Award winning uh, author, writer, and all around largest nerd I have ever personally met, Foz Meadows. Ahoy! Hey Foz, how are you doing? I'm pretty good, how are you? Can't complain. Um, what, alright, what uh, uh, pop culture stuff have you been consuming lately? I have been very into the genre that I am referring to as spooky forest crime. <laughs> Which is indulged. I'm indulging this largely through Netflix. So my favorite example of spooky forest crime at the moment is Black Spot, which is a French show. I highly recommend it. It's Zone Blanche in French, ironically. Black Spot meaning a place out of cell phone signal. <laughs> nice. Uh, and it's local detective uh, in the gendarmerie went into the forest as a teenager, came out missing some memories and two fingers, is trying to figure out what happened to her in the spooky forest as a teenager, but also there are town shenanigan politics tied in with the magic stuff. Uh, it's very cool. There's also another French one called The Forest, which is not spooky. Oh, literally, literally The literally Forest. The forest. Nice. Uh, it doesn't have actual supernatural themes, but it does have crime that is in a forest or forest adjacent. <laughs> Um, so and, and and this is uh, so is the forest the monster or is violence being done to the forest is violence being done in and around the forest in and, in and around the Fair forest enough. mostly uh, <coughs> but particularly black spot is that rarest of things which is a crime procedural that does not revolve around the brutalization of women which is fucking refreshing it's so refreshing so even in the first episode where there's a female victim it's not sexualized you don't see the naked body mm -hmm. it's so even though you you will have episodes where women are victims of crime right uh, it's not done with, in that gratuitous way of having to show you nudity or having to show you the actual crime taking place on the woman's body right and, I, and, and so much of it is sort of the way that it's shot i think and framed yeah also it has a really adorable uh police guy called well his his name his nickname in the show translates to teddy bear uh, who is a, he's a very cuddly, bearded, gay, du rugged dude. Excellent. Uh, who ends up in a romance with a semi-closeted fireman, and it's <laughs> it's it's very sweet and very good. Excellent. So he so uh, side note here, but the fact that it's called Black Spot, I realize that my brain keeps trying to autocorrect it to Black Books, Black Adder, and Black Sales. <laughs> None of which it, it is that. Um, do you remember um, a couple of years ago that horror movie? Uh, I think it was called The Forest. Uh, and it was a very bad idea movie where it was like, what if uh, we did a thing about the uh, the woods in Japan where people go to kill themselves? And oh yeah, the, the suicide forest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't uh, that the one that uh, noted Aoki, asshat Logan, Logan Paul went to? And yeah, like, uh, Aoki Gahara, I think. Yeah, where where Logan Paul went and was like, hey, here's me filming myself near a suicide victim because I'm not a complete shit stain of a human here's, being. Here's me doing a YOLO on top of a dead body. And yeah. Uh, I nobody I know has seen the forest, but it was like let's get Natalie Dormer and make a movie where she's getting yelled at by ghosts in the suicide forest. Yes. And then everybody just kind of went, mm, what if we didn't do that though? Yeah. How about we not? Yeah. Yeah. Um, honestly, uh, procedurals. I feel like uh, my favorite procedural of like the last five years is prob. Although I guess it's not maybe not a procedural, but the fall with Johnny Anderson. Yes. I I saw that and the and I. I'm always hypnotized by Gillian Anderson. Of course. And I'm usually very into particularly non-American crime procedurals, but mm -hmm. I think I've gone through a thing at the moment where it's just like, I'm very done with broad church style. Yeah. Um, 
Broadchurch in my house is referred to as sad, David Tennant being sad on a beach. Yeah, I mean, and, which is literally what it is. And the, actually, weirdly, the forest is kind of like a French Broadchurch, but not as grittily sad. It's actually got a bit more warmth and, and humor in it. Nice. Because, uh, like, Broadchurch, like, it's, it's, he's got all the integrity in the world, but also he is very sad. He's so sad on a beach, and it's a terrible British beach, and you want to be sad on British beaches because they're inherently depressing. Yeah. Um, but anyway, but it's that, that really gritty, sad, a child or a woman has been abused. Yeah. And like, I, I can deal with those as plot elements, but not when the whole emotional weight of the story hinges on, oh, the brutalization that happens. It makes this good man so sad on a beach. And... <laughs> <laughs> right, you know, like the worst thing about women dying, it makes David Tennant very sad. Yes, it's he's so sad. He's the true victim. I honestly, I and I feel like I remember um, this was years ago. Uh, there is a apparently really good Japanese movie called I Saw the Devil that I still have not seen because I had I think at the time that I'd seen it, I, I, I've seen like the first ten minutes of it, and when I watched it, I had just seen two other movies that start with like, you know, there's nothing sadder than the death of a beautiful woman, and you just see a woman getting fucking brutalized on screen. And then I Why? saw, yeah. And then I saw, I saw the devil, and then was just like, you know what, man, I can't. And if, and you know, the rest of the movie is sort of a game of cat and mouse between the killer and the lady's husband. But it's also like, I feel like we're far enough post Death Wish that maybe let's fucking find a different narrative. Yeah, and this is this is what I really like about Black Spot and The Forest is that both of these shows, I like honestly, fucking French crime procedurals just have my number. There's a couple yeah. of others I've watched. Uh, that I can't, the names of which are escaping me temporarily, but those two particularly center female agency, mm-hmm. even in the case of female crimes. So in the second of, like, well, crimes against women. Right. So in the second season of um, Black Spot, there is, um, there is one episode where a woman has been raped. Mm-hmm. You never see any sexual abuse Right. on the screen you never see any flashbacks to it right. it's only alluded to it and when you hear the crime the crime described it is in the victim's words right. as she's giving a statement so the narrative um, is hers and it's not sort so of the narrative is hers and it's not used to it's not used to make it sensational or anything like that plus it, the whole episode is really cool because there's like this spooky scene with like a nest of snakes oh wow glowing over a light holding a piece of evidence well and, and, and it's this thing of like you, you know if, if they're giving like a loving description of you know a woman being brutalized and it's like do we really need that to get the fucking reality of the situation yeah that's the thing it's it's that whole great argument that came out well it was not an argument per se, but I saw a lot of great commentary when Mad Max Fury Road came out oh, about yeah. how we never needed to see Immortanjo abusing the wives no. because we had the wives' testimony to show us what had happened to them. Yeah. And that was all the more powerful. Yeah. Honestly, I, I keep trying to get uh, Sarah and Christina to watch the original Mad Max. Um, also, bec- and, and I, I figured out the exact way to do it. They hadn't realized that George Miller, who did... Uh, Fury Road also did all of the yeah. other Mad Maxes, and also Babe Two: Pig in the City. Which, that movie is brutal. By the way, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, if you would, if you would like to sob about a pit bull strangling itself by a chain <laughs> off a bridge into a pretty looking canal when it's been trying to kill Babe, and then <laughs> Babe shit. pushes a boat with his snout under the strangling dog that's been trying to kill him so it doesn't die catch like 10 year old me or whatever sobbing into my head 
But if I watched that now, I would right. be sobbing into my hands. You know what it is? We need to do a double feature of Mad Max Fury Road and Babe 2 Pig in the City. You know what? You know, you, fuck, I just remembered. When they do the Babe movies, you know they had the, the talking mice do the title cards? Oh, for each scene? yeah, yeah, yeah. That scene has the mice going, the kindest heart. <sighs> Jesus Christ. I oh, So wait, so Babe 2 Pig in the City, um, doesn't it also have, like, isn't there like a Nazi subplot in it or something? I don't even, I can't even remember, but I remember that there's the three orangutans that have been held in the, the hotel by the, the old comedian or whatever, the old clown guy. Yeah. Who the oldest one refers to as himself. And then right. he's, the, the guy has like died or abandoned them or something and they won't leave the hotel. But then he ends up at the end of the movie thinking Mrs. Hoggett is herself and so he stays to help her. It's... That movie is messed up. And they're like, you know what would be fun for kids? Let's do this to, for this kids movie. It'll be it'll be fun and good. Yeah, it's um, that that movie is traumatizing on so many levels. I think I have such uh, a love of an appreciation for uh, sequels that completely fuck the couch and lose their mind and just do something completely off the wall. Like, I feel like Gremlins Two is a good example for me of like, there's the original movie and then the one that just absolutely loses its mind. See, I think I see. I never saw the Gremlins movies as a kid, and I tried to watch the first Gremlins as an adult yeah. with no nostalgic attachment to it, and did I don't it do recommend it. No, well, it it made me think, wow, this is racist. Mm. Uh, and oh, with, with the the Mogwai thing. The Mogwai the... thing, and then just like that wacky shtick at the beginning of, uh oh, you're late for the big meeting, so you need my crazy invention because men don't remember to do basic hygiene. Right. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, that guy, which I, I think is one of my favorite archetypes, the, like, desperate inventor, mm. who's like, my life is a shambles because I can't even tie my own goddamn shoes, but I've got a crazy dream and I'm all hopped up on coke and he's just, like, gonna run out and try like, to sell you a mechanical toothpick or something. Yeah, but it's, like, all the problems that he has, it's, like, get your shit together, Joe. Yeah, like, yeah. all of all of the problems that you're trying to in create an invention to solve could be solved with you not being a total doink. Like, if yeah, you could just get yeah. out the house on time. Yeah, honestly, you can... Did you know that you can actually be a hopeless dreamer on the way to your fucking job? Yeah. All the way there, you can do it. But the thing that got me about that when he's trying to, like, pitch his invention to the boss, mm -hmm. it's like, okay, your entire invention is predicated on what to do if you are a forgetful late running person right so what happens when they forget your invention bob R right like yeah yeah i guess we didn't fucking guess we didn't fucking think about that yeah yeah like it's yeah gremlins it it hasn't aged great although i think for me so much of the appeal is that those things scared the shit out of me when i was a kid uh when they turned into yeah. scary gremlins but that's yeah so anyway all right so the uh so the movie we're talking about on this episode uh is a movie that i had not seen and had also never heard of until uh Foz made me aware of it uh, it is... All right, so how would you describe this movie? So, it's called The Awakening, and it's a ghost story that is interrogating ghost stories. Yeah, it's deconstructionist. It's, uh, what, from 2011, I think? Yes. And it is an English? It's Yeah, it's a British ghost story. It's set just after World War One. I. I think it's set between World War One and World War Two. A notoriously cheerful period of time for everyone. Yes, and the movie, the title card that comes up at the start of the movie with a fake quote from the heroine Florence Cathcart saying how many men died in World War One," with the conclusion, this is a time for ghosts. Uh, Jesus. And it's, 
the idea is Florence Cathcart is a woman who goes around debunking the fraudsters that came up in that period who would be holding fake seances and bilking people out of their money and right. pretending to show ghosts. So the opening scene, it looks like you're seeing a very traditional haunting seance scene, but actually it's a bunch of, a bunch of hucksters who have set up this thing and Florence is pretending to go along to the seance. She debunks it, the police come in, and then in the street, the woman who'd been getting bilked uh, with the hope of seeing her dead daughter slaps her and says, you've never had children, have you? And then it's very yeah. clear after that that Florence is, is really taking emotional damage from doing this, although we don't quite know why. Yeah, and, um, and, and like, the, the, the fake sounds like they've sort of got, like, spring-loaded shit under the tables, and they've got... Yeah, it's you know. genuine table wrappers with, uh, you know, a little child wearing a, a white wig and a white smock with sort of white paint or something on their face to make them look like a ghost. Right. Uh, you know, lines that are pulled to snuff the wicks of candles, all of this sort of stuff all of the theatre and pageantry of it. Right. Uh, Florence goes home, and then a guy comes to the door. She originally thinks that he's there to have a copy of her book on ghost hunting signed. Right. But he says, no, I'm from a school out, you know, in the country. We think we have a real ghost, and we want you to come and investigate. Yeah, which, by the way, side note, um, if I ever have the chance to go to a big cartoony seance... I would love to go. I want to get like I'm, I don't think I would. I don't know that I would pay money for it. And there's nobody dead that I particularly care to talk to. <laughs> but I think it's that I just I want to go to a thing that's like a sort of goofy, uh, almost like Edwardian, like turn of the century sort of like, you know, lest I shake, lest I shiver, and you've got like sort of sh shit flying around the room. Like if there could be somebody who could put on. Um, a live bad seance. See, I don't think you actually want to go to a seance. I think you want to be physically transported in time to an Agatha Christie novel. That's exactly right. And to have one of those parties where it's Marchioness blah blah blah. I want that fucking mummery. Like, give yeah. me, give me this fucking fraudulent experience. That sounds really fun. We've got like the local tennis star and his way too young wife and some sort <laughs> of countess and the the clearly fey dude. Right. Come along to sip cocktails and bitch. Yeah, and then in, in the study. Somebody does a murder on the balcony, and then there's the suspicious Italian guy because it's the 1930s. Right, and, and, and there's <laughs> and, and there's like the son of the guy who uh, you know built the place, and he's clearly haunted, but you know he's yeah. Yeah, that's that's what you want. You want but to also, be in you know, Christie novel. But also, he's got racism. Without the racism and and the yeah, especially the Orientalism. In yeah, it's not it's not great. Not great. Um, so yeah, so give me that fucking mummery, but m no racism. In that's the old razzle, razzle, with no racism. Um, and all right, so she goes to this, and so because she herself is an orphan, um, she gets sort of on board with it because the way he's selling it to her is like, look, these kids are all orphans. And he's quoting to her from her own book yeah. about how fear swallows a child, and it is clearly presented as an underhanded. It's a low blow. What it's, he's doing? Yeah, you can clearly see that she's just like how. Dare you use How my dare you come into my house and quote my own words at me to make me go to your school in the middle of nowhere? Yeah, yeah, um, it's 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 a fucking ungracious, I think. Yeah, so they go to the school, and it's very clear that the matron of the school is the one who has arranged for her to be brought there because she has Florence's book, you know, next to the Bible on her shelf. Right. Uh, and immediately, there's a little boy who catches Florence's eye, who appears to be close with the matron. Yeah. Uh, 
we go into the school, she's trying to figure out what happened because a student has actually died is the impetus for them saying, we think we've got a real ghost and it scared somebody to death. Right. A little boy at the school has recently died. It's a boarding school. And so scared to death specifically. Scared to death specifically is what they think has happened. Yeah. Um, and it's what unfolds from here is this really amazing sort of double braided narrative. And it's, I think it's impossible to actually talk about this movie without spoiling it. Yeah, and, and to be fair, this is one of those movies that you don't want to spoil because of how satisfying the reveals are. Yes, so if, if, what, if what we said to this point intrigues you, turn off the rest of the episode and come back when you've watched it. Because yeah. Because you don't want to be spoiled for it if you haven't seen it. Yeah. If you're cool being spoiled or if you've already seen it, carry we're on. We're going to do that. We're going we're gonna to do keep, that because you listening. can't... The, the reveal is amazing, but that's why you can't discuss the movie without discussing the reveal to some yeah, extent. exactly. Um, so, Florence sets about making a ghost trap. She interviews the boys. She It's not really a, a, a ghost trap because she herself doesn't believe in, in ghosts. She's a debunker, but she yeah. clearly feels haunted by this. She wants to believe in something, but she doesn't think it's there, and that's why she keeps seeking it out. Yeah. Um, we see that the headmaster from the school has lost his children to the war. We see that the masters themselves that are there uh, have come back from the war haunted and changed. Mm-hmm. And there's a groundsman, Judd, who is despised by the teachers who did go to the war for the fact that he, uh, you know, pled off with a fake illness and injury to get out of it. Yeah. Um, so, and, and it's this thing of, you know, sort of, you know, you didn't even go and get killed in World War One. Yeah. How dare you? And the, it's it's this mutual sort of toxic masculinity, but also appreciation of damage. Because, yes, yeah. the men who've come back from this war, that did come back, the few that came back, are hurt and damaged. Yeah. And they're angry that Judd didn't go. And Judd's point is, well, of course I didn't go. Why would you want to? Yeah, because, but, because but, that war was about nothing and for nothing. Yeah, but he also has a complex about it now because he of how he's viewed and he's angry yeah. about at, at the respect given to the men who went as opposed to him. And which, in fairness, like, I don't know, I feel like serving in World War One. what if, I, that, that, that's certainly a choice. Like, what's, what's your end game here? What's, what are you fighting for? Like, yeah. what's the, what's the purpose of this? Like, that was one of those, it, it was a war where, like, everybody was inventing the pretext for it while it was going on. Yeah, and it was all meant to be over by Christmas originally, and then that didn't happen. No. Well, because it was meant to be over by Christmas, but then everybody opened their presents early, and it turned out that the presents were uh, mustard gas and machine guns. And trenches. And trenches, and all of this new stuff that they wanted to try out, and... Yeah. Yeah. So Florence sets this trap, and as she's sort of setting up her instruments and her, her strings and wires... Uh, we keep hearing little echoes of, of a male voice yelling. And we initially think it's one of the teachers saying the same thing over and over. Uh, but we are, we're not quite sure that we're hearing it because it, it's not really highlighted in the in the film in those moments. Yeah. Um, she goes around, she catches somebody running through, a, a boy running through the school in the night. Uh, but she also sees a couple of things that she can't quite explain. Right. And come the morning, there's a scene where, yes, one of the boys is unmasked as having pretended to be a ghost. Right. uh, And was put up to it by boys who have been bullying him. Right. But she also proves that the the death of the boy was caused by one of the masters who had locked a boy who was asthmatic 
outside because and taken his teddy bear for him, left yeah. him out in the dark. And they're saying, children don't fight, drive fright. And she says, yes, but an asthma attack brought on by fear Could. can. Yeah. And it emerges that the man who did this has been to walk humbug and said he wanted him to be strong, stronger than us. Right, because he... And, and this is... It's this heartbreaking fucking thing of the guys that have been in World War One. It's like the only way that they can... You know, they, they themselves are terrified of everything and damaged and... Yeah. You know, and the, the way that they... The way in which they think they can help these children is to just beat the shit out of them and sort of toughen them up. And really, it's just... It's this... Uh, cycle of bullshit that just sort of repeats. Yeah, it is this toxic masculinity where you can see, and you do feel it's a beautifully done moment because you do feel a genuine pang of sympathy for the guy who was accidentally led to the death of a child of this child because he's clearly a broken man. He's clearly haunted. He's he's taking yeah. it out on the boys in this toxic, awful way, but it's he's trying to get them to to be the kind of boys who can survive what he went through without becoming him. Yeah. He doesn't realise that he's perpetuating a different form of what turned him into him. Right, right. And that ultimately, you know, doing that to these kids, you're creating a problem where there actually wasn't one. Yeah. Like, um, they, they didn't have the fucking horrors of war to, to, to shape their brains, and so hmm. bringing that home and sort of... And I, I kind of like the idea that you kind of can't go off to a war... And come back and not have that come home to roost. Yeah, and it's it's very much about that sort of cycle of, of violence. Um, but and, and the story could end there, but Florence still wants an explanation because she thinks there was a second boy yeah. around in the night. But the boys who are caught say it was only the one. Right. So as the rest of the children go home for half term, she stays on to finish her investigations with Matron and the master who originally came to get her, whose name is temporarily escaping me. Yeah, same. Um, I'm just going to call him John. John, yeah. Um, so they, they stay around at the school, and she keeps investigating. She's not quite sure what she's looking for, mm-hmm. uh, but she keeps on finding signs of a presence. Right. And it's this sort of very atmospheric search through the house but also about her relationship with John as it's sort of progressing in that he has also come back traumatised from the war and is self-harming basically like re- perpetually reopening a scar on his thigh he's to, keeping it open to to remind him because he's got survivor's guilt right essentially um, and just a cheerful movie you it's know? a very cheerful movie it's a fun movie about <laughs> very fun cheerful things. movie uh, the only boy left in the in the school is the the one that seems to be the matron's son who's right. left alone to stay there and the thing is that the visions that Florence keeps seeing in the in the school are you know there's of a man with a gun in a tuxedo all of these things that don't quite add up to what's to what's gone on in the in the house right um, and which which is why she's saying around because like something about this like it doesn't there's something not accounted for yeah, and I should say the reason that she that she stays or, or is kept for longer is that she seems to try and commit suicide at one point. Mm-hmm. She she's so frustrated at having found nothing and is feeling so desolate at having found nothing that she rolls off a pier into the water and is is rescued. Uh, yeah, and it's this sort of very tense moment with her and the matron and the story that she then tells the little boy is. Who, who asks about the scars on her shoulder when she's sort of wrapped in a blanket in front of the fire mm-hmm. is that her parents were killed 
in Africa when she was a baby and she was found by a tribe who called her Mousy White Doll. And it seems, it, it's this, when you're first watching it, that feels like a particularly racially jarring moment in what is otherwise a very sensitive film. Yeah. Um, but it is proven not to be so yeah. by the end reveal, which, shall we... Yeah, let's go into it. The end reveal is that the little boy that she's been seeing, the matron's son, is a ghost. The matron knows this. More to the point, the boarding school used to be a house. Specifically, it used to be Florence's house. Mm-hmm. And the matron used to be her sort of wet nurse. The little boy was her half-brother. The ghost that she's been seeing there uh, is her father, who killed the boy and then himself. And right. this is... She'd blocked out the memories of all of this. And as we keep seeing in these sort of telling shots, even from early on when we first get there, uh, paintings <coughs> of violence on the walls... Uh, little knickknacks from Africa a picture of a lion attacking a horse and it's very clear that she's in her in her memory has conjured up this story about having been in Africa and lost her parents that way right. and that no one disabused her of that because she was a traumatised young yeah, child because you, you don't want to sit a kid down and go actually actually your that, parents both you know your, your dad killed your mother and then killed your brother and, and then, then tried and then because he was trying to kill you tried to tried to kill you killed the brother by accident was so annoyed at having killed the son that he killed himself wait did you say annoyed at killing well, the brother annoyed so <laughs> oh god damn it oh, me god damn it. yeah turns a gun on himself yeah yeah but it's this the whole thing that we've been and it come it can come as quite a shock the first time you watch the film definitely but it's everything is seeded through. It's not one of those reveals that comes out of nowhere and you're like, wait, what? Yeah, it's 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 not a what-the-fuck reveal or an oh-shit reveal. It's an of-course reveal. Yeah, where you come back to it and you realise, oh, we've been seeing all of these close-ups of the pictures on the walls and the fact that she seems to have a connection to this place, uh, the fact that the matron was the one who brought her because yeah. she wants her to be a forever a ghost companion forever for the boy who's perpetually lonely in this place where he's surrounded by little children yeah. who can't see him. Yeah. Um, and it turns out he did actually frighten the boy who was locked outside to death, but it was an accident. He, he yeah. didn't mean to scare him. Um, but the lonely boys, the matron says, are starting to see him now. And that's why they've chosen this time a... to bring Florence in. Uh, and the matron's plan is to kill Florence once she knows the truth so that she can stick around and be the companion for her bastard half-brother ghost right and the the, the matron who's played by Imelda Staunton yes who by the way I my, my entire frame of reference for Imelda Staunton uh starting out was when I was a kid I would watch uh, Much Ado About Nothing mm-hmm. on uh sort of repeat when I was a kid yeah uh and <laughs> I she she played uh Margaret in she Much did. Ado, where she sort of had sex out a window, <laughs> and and then Claudio uh, called Hero a slut so hard she died from it, um, and and so another song who also she was uh, Umbridge I think yes yeah? she was Dolores Umbridge fucking great actor amazing performance in this, and it it's just an incredibly heartfelt movie and in it takes so many sort of narrative and emotional twists it's about. Uh, female sexual agency, just female agency generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about sort of toxic masculinity and cycles of toxic masculinity. Cycles of abuse. Cycles of abuse and violence. Uh, and, th- I mean, the tragedy, you don't even feel angry at the at Matron at the end for having tried to, to kill Florence, is that she was the maid to Florence's father. The implication is that he sort of forced himself on her and had this bastard son out of wedlock and was perpetually angry at his legal wife because she wouldn't give him a son. 
Right. And then Which I always loved I always love that as a thing, like give me a son. Like bodies do what they do. do buddy. Yeah, it's like, not that's not how it works. But then when the family died, despite the fact that the matron had basically had lost her own biological son and had basically raised Florence till that point. Right. She wasn't considered a fit caretaker for her, so she was taken away. So she loses both children and the whole thing is she just wants them back. And this particular you know, this theme of losing children in this house that is a boarding school where these right. children come to be lost, well, essentially. Yeah. And, and because boarding schools, especially, like, I, I I, think that an English boarding school sounds, like, necessarily cursed. Yeah. Like, as a space. Like, there's just something about an English boarding school that there's, like, a, a, a loneliness there. And also because, like, for gothic horror, which this is absolutely gothic horror. Yes. Uh, but honestly, what's great about it? It starts out, and you think that it's going to be like Northanger Abbey, mm. where it's like sort of taking the piss with ghost stories, and then sort of setting up your expectations and going, ghosts don't exist. And this starts to do that, and then goes, no, actually, they totally do. Yeah, it's it's about sort of the loneliness that makes people look for ghosts in that period. It's the whole idea yeah. of uh, the, the culture of, of Britain at the time. So many people were lost in the war that and, people are looking... And I've actually... This yeah. is a slight sidebar, but I, I wonder if this was something that... Um, inspired the story a bit but i've seen it uh read about it somewhere that sort of the tradition of american um ghost stories a lot of it came about after the civil war right because it was the first sort of time that you had uh, certainly for white americans right. that you had death on that kind of scale but not even on that scale but where the bodies didn't come home because yeah. it used to be this huge thing that the body would come home if somebody died they would die in their house if they died a little way away the body would come home and you would have that visual proof that the person had died yeah. but there were so many losses in the war and no way to take and you know people dying so far from home yeah that that was where sort of the genesis of american ghost stories that, that you know if, if, that, if, if the battlefield looks like a claw crane machine full of you know stuffed animals where it's just like piled fucking hugely with bodies and you can't yeah you know uh, and so that's specifically where that white American tradition of, of ghost stories uh, and, and the loss of bodies uh, comes from, the idea of hauntings, because you yeah. wanted the ghost to come home. You wanted you wanted the body to come home, but you couldn't have the body, so you imagined these sort of crossroads spirits or journeying ghosts trying yeah. to get back home. This is actually... Um, I There's a movie uh, that uh, I have that you should definitely see called Death Dream, mm. which uh, takes place... Uh, right. It, it was, I think, made right after the Vietnam War. Um, so it's a 70s movie, and it's uh, sort of um, this the mother of a, a soldier in an unnamed war that is definitely not Vietnam, but it's very obviously Vietnam. It's Shmietnam. Yeah, Shmietnam. Shmi yeah, Shmi and so <laughs> she makes sort of a monkey's paw wish about, like, oh, I wish my son would come home. And he does, but the thing is that he's fucking dead, and it's yeah. just this... You know, he, he, he wants to be alive and he doesn't know how and his body is falling apart. And he... It's, it's one of those things of, like, man, war is just... Uh, listen, controversial statement. Uh, war may be bad. Maybe war is bad and hurts people. How do you be so controversial and yet so and brave? And yet so brave. Yeah, remember, you heard it here last. Yeah. Um, war but, is bad. I mean, the thing I'd like to see is a Civil War ghost story that takes into account... There were, so I've read about this. There was an actual phenomenon. I think it was called uh, Angel's Mercy. But that when there was the, the sort of particularly in, in the southern states, uh, you know, the sort of dying and fighting in boggy places. Yeah. Um, there was a phenomenon known where uh, wounds, some wounds would glow, and 
then that particular soldier would get better. And at the time, it was just sort of thought of this divine providence. Right. But it's actually this particular form of bioluminescent bacteria that was getting into the wounds in these boggy places right. and effectively cleaning them. Right. Uh, and it was but, actually God uh, swiping a, a cotton swab across them. Yeah, but that when if you you know you're some civil war soldier you don't know what bacteria is you don't know what bioluminescence is all you see is that the guy next to you has an open wound that should be killing him but suddenly it is glowing blue in the darkness and, and then the next day fine. he's better so angels you know it's yeah <laughs> you know but that's a real that was a real thing and that's like a fascinating you know that thing that should and, and it's yeah so so much of this is a response to death on a mass scale and people trying yeah. to make sense of it and people trying to figure out what their life away from it looks like now because how do you you know have a thing like the fucking battle of antietam and then sort of all right well i guess i'm going back to connecticut and everything is fine and like you yeah. how do you leave those ghosts where they are you can yeah it's there's a great it's it's not about the war but it, it, i feel applicable there's a great uh and sexton line in one of her poems um which is, and what of the dead? They lie without shoes in their stone boats. They are more like stone than the sea would be if it stopped. They refuse to be blessed, throat, eye, and knuckle bone. Uh, Jesus. Yeah. Okay, that's excellent. Yeah, it, it's, an, it's about the dead, because her parents died a couple of months apart, and that's what it's about. It's like, um, you know, it's June, I am tired of being brave. Yeah, which and, I feel like I've heard as a line. Like, I mean, even out of context, it's a, it's a fucking great line. It is a great line, but they are more like stone than the sea would be if it stopped is a hell of a line. Yeah, it is. And I think that applies to this sort of sentiment. Yeah, well, and, and so The Awakening, I think, the yeah, the key to the movie for me is that the, the mother of the, the dead kid at the beginning, you know, slapping her in the face for ruining this thing for her and then being like, you never had kids. Yeah. And it's this idea, yeah, it's this idea, um, did you ever watch, um, have you, have you seen all of Buffy the Vampire Slayer? I have seen all of Buffy and Angel. Uh, also, also Angel. Yes. Which, uh, I, yeah. I, I, oh, sidebar, <laughs> the previous episode when you were talking about the terrible puppet movie, I was basically yelling at my computer, why are you not talking about Smile, Smile Time? Time? Yeah, yeah, I, I should have talked about Smile <laughs> Time from Angel. It's a perfect. He's a wee little puppet He's, he's a wee little puppy. I don't have puppet cancer. He's just... Honestly, the shot in that of them doing the badass walk toward the camera and just small Muppet David Boreanaz with a, with a broadsword. Oh, and, and Spike fighting Puppet Angel. Don't say it. Don't, Don't say it. It's, it's, it's <laughs> perfect. Spike just laughing, rolling around with just, an angry puppet. Just an angry puppet. Honestly. The uh, puppet doing the vampire face. Yeah, which also, yeah, I love that they do vamp face for, for the puppet, which honestly, season five of Angel, while, like, I think as a show, is Angel... the best. Season five is the best season because it's completely off, like, the weird season was season four with all of the creepy Jesus. Connor Cordelia like that's yeah man they they, they did they did Charisma Carpenter so dirty they so they so did and that whole season is like some vampire days of our lives skeevy kind of Oedipus complex yeah weird weird stuff going on in also, that episode also where that it's like season. also where it's like you know we've only done a couple of mystical pregnancies with Cordy yeah, let's I do feel another like we can, one. Yeah, I feel like we can really go for it this time. Yeah. And let's have her spiritually give birth to Gina Torres, I guess. <sighs> I um, guess. Um, and, but, but then yeah. season five, where they take over the law firm, and it's that beautiful... It, it's Because it's completely detached from everything else. It's the season that exists after Buffy has finished. So yeah. it's this kind of standalone thing where I'm it no longer has to... It's unbeholden to Buffy. 
Spike comes back as a weird ghost and then somehow gets corporealized again. He comes back as a weird ghost entirely because we like James Marsters and want him to be here. Yes, and so he's I here now. endorse that as a decision. I do too. And I, I'm still, like, what happens to Fred slash Illyria is, Illyria is still, like, it's a man-pain moment for Wesley sure. and it's a fridging moment. I forgive it slightly in the sense that they didn't actually lose a female character because they gained... A female character. They gained a female character. But yeah. the, it, it's one of those moments where it's like, I feel like I should be narratively angry at what this did in terms of man-pain. Yeah. But at the same time, fuck, that episode is a hole in the world. Oh, where, just... a hole in the world? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Where they flash back to her. Anyway, it's... The, the, the bunny. Yeah, the bunny. Oh, Jesus. Um, but like, uh, honestly, uh, like season five of Angel, like it's it's wildly uneven. Or like, I, would, I should say Angel the series is wildly uneven in terms of quality and tone. Yes. Because first season is like, what if we do Batman noir? Second season, high fantasy? Yeah. And it, it's it's a lot. But the, uh, the only the only really iconic bits from the second season of Angel. Hey, look at the fire I'm not on. Yeah, either that, either that or... Uh, <laughs> Numcar, do the yeah, dance of shame. Numcar, do the dance of joy. And it's having, yeah. Uh, so, you know, but anyway, so Buffy, uh, what was I? Oh, but the body, right? Yes. So the episode, the body, uh, so going back to sort of how do we, how, how, how do death? What, yes. what am death? Death? Um, and then, you know, you've sort of got like that being the episode with like no music. But also the great thing with Anya, where everyone thinks she's being inappropriate the whole episode by asking questions about what's going to happen to Joyce's body, what's going to happen now, right. and it's really upsetting everyone, and until she finally loses it and says, I, I don't, don't understand why her body is there and she can't just get back into right. it, and she's not going to brush her hair or drink orange juice or do anything anymore, and no one will tell me why. Right. She just fundamentally doesn't understand yeah, how this a, has happened. She's a fucking demon. She's, she's thousands of years old. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so I think that in terms of, like, you know, people coming back, uh, I do love that the show kind of averts that, and, like, they play with it with uh, Dawn making uh, that monkey's paw, uh, monkey's paw wish. Yeah. And then sort of, you know, you know that she is walking... Whatever this thing is that looks kind of like Joyce... It won't be Joyce. It won't be Joyce. And I think there's this fear we all have that once you, once the lights go out, hmm. that's kind of it. Like, you hmm. can't really... And in fairness, we're talking about uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which sort of codified plenty of people coming back from the grave and basically yes. being themselves, and it's fine. We're actually, um, in my household, we're actually doing a Buffy rewatch right now. Nice. Here's the thing. Season one fucking rules. I love season one. Willow dates a demon that is the internet. Yes. Uh, if the apocalypse comes, beep me. Beep me. Fuck yes. You yeah. get lines like, if you're not jacked in, you may as well not even be alive. And it's, uh, yeah, Jenny Callender's a tech oh, pagan. Oh, that whole episode, remember how the guy was writing a class report on, Neo on Nazi Germany as a model society because the internet demon made him write it? Ah, fuck, I forgot that! Accidentally prescient! <laughs> fuck, there's so many fucking Nazis. 2019 is a hell dimension. <laughs> um, so yeah, so The Awakening as a movie, it is the probably one of the slowest burn movies I've seen that's a horror movie and I think that you specifically tend I tell me if I'm wrong you kind of favor slow burn horror I, I do and I don't I it, so a movie I did not particularly like was The Pretty Thing That Lives in the or I Am The Pretty Thing That Lives in the House because yeah. that was just I, I felt got, slow I, to the point of nothing actually happening yeah. and it it was I liked it but I think I liked it because I'm Shirley Jackson trash I, I, the thing that annoyed me about it was you don't get any explanation. Like, the thing that hooks mm -hmm. me in those kind of slow burn stories yeah. is the why. Right. Why did she end up in the walls of the house? Why did he kill her? 
why did she decide to talk to the novelist? Right. Why is she there? And we don't get that. We just get this sort of scared, whispery narration from the girl in the house. Mm-hmm. And the reveal is that she was in the walls. And it's like, well, we, we kind of knew that. Like, yeah. you haven't told us anything that we couldn't intuit in the first five minutes when you showed the telephone being all ghosty. We knew there was a ghost. Right. And you'll be like, haha, there was a body in the house. Yes, and? Yeah. And then there was no further elaboration so yes i do like i do like some slow burn horror but it's less it's less about the slowness of the burn and more about um the emotional catharsis right that comes with it so yeah because slow burn for you is sort of conducive i think to that where everything kind of builds up and then gets a release and gets an, an explanation yeah so like i do like a lot of trash horror and and like fun um sort of like actiony horror or stuff that's just more immediately like brah yeah yeah um, which i mean i i think that i always think of that as like party horror where it's yeah. like if it's like a, a goofy slasher movie or a you know a zombie movie or something like if it's something you can like throw on at a party and you know you've got a pizza and everybody's just hanging out like that's perfectly fine i don't think that you know you could put on the awakening at a party and yeah. sort of expect everybody to hang out and no watch it. it's it's not it's more sort of like sitting quietly with a couple of friends uh, maybe you know a couple of, yeah, you know you, like tea and yeah. you know, you're watching it and it's yeah yeah I think it's it's my life I like slow burn horror as a as a thing that is distinct from mumblecore because yeah. I'm, I'm anti-mumblecore myself it's the thing I find annoying about so I've already whinged about this film the last time you had me on the podcast Excellent. which was we are who we like we are yeah, who we are. We hope, yeah. yeah, which was a garbage movie. Yeah, it was. And it's just one of those movies is is slow burn for the because it doesn't know what to do with itself. And then yeah. let's have a plot twist in the last two minutes that changes everything about the film while making no sense. Yeah, um, M- mumblecore to me is sort of <sighs> all right. It's it's like if there's a rock band that has two guitar players and neither of them ever plays any solos or any leads and they're both just playing the same part. It's because they can't play a solo to me. Yeah. Like it's. If you're if you're making a movie that's meandering and incoherent and you know and then after the fact going it's supposed to be like that I feel like that's a, still a lack of craft and I don't fucking want to watch it. I feel like there's a particular type of male writer or, or male director who mistakes putting a woman on screen for the woman having a character arc. Yeah. And I like I feel like a lot of mumblecore stuff seems to to fall into that trap where it's like yes technically you have made a film with a female protagonist or female protagonists but she doesn't grow she doesn't right. change and she doesn't do anything except look kind of sad and and it's like sad boner gothic it just yeah it, yeah yeah sad boner gothic I, that's uh the, inke- the innkeepers by ty west for me is like that where it's like there's I, there's this actor uh, in the main role like she's fucking great but she doesn't have anything to do yeah and it's whereas the awakening so at the time when I first, because I saw it when it came out in cinemas. And Wait, you saw this in the movie? Yeah, like, I, I, in saw this in, I saw this in the theater. Holy shit. And I was immediately impressed with it. I can't yeah. even remember how I heard about it. I think I just, it was one of those things I saw a review for and was like, oh, I'll go and see that. The thought of watching this in a big theater is so wild to me. It was, it was, it was actually quite a little because it was not house release. It didn't oh, get okay. a wide release, so it was right. a small cinema. Uh, but after I saw it, I was super impressed. And I went on Twitter and found the, the writer-director and like added him saying, um, I, I thought this was a really great movie and I wanted to know if Florence Cathcart was based off any historical figure. And I didn't think he'd reply to me, but he did and right. said, I wrote a female character that I thought my daughters could aspire to be or be like. Right. And I was like, yes, thank you. Here is a dude who gets it. Yeah. Because 
but I, I thought it was especially um, powerful him saying that in that he's written a character who has suicidal ideation, yeah. who is depressed and complicated, but who is really fiercely intelligent. And you like the way she works out um, how the how the the fraud ghosts are being pulled off. Like right. she's an amazingly compelling and also has sexual agency in the film. Yes, and I think like. No, yeah, you don't have to say, oh, here is a, this matters to a woman who is related to me as opposed to just mattering, period. Right. The, but, the sort of like, well, I didn't think that women were people, but then I had a daughter and it turns out... Yeah, no, it wasn't like that at all, but no. I just thought it was like, yes, this is a guy who is, apart from being able to write a good female character, right. has acknowledged that his daughters are going to be women who grow up to have agency and sexual desires yeah. and complicated internal states. Yeah, and that their, and, their lives belong to them. Yeah. And, yeah. and that was what I thought was... like. Yeah, man. It's it's a really good film for that, and it, 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 yeah, it's very satisfying. Yeah, and also I like a movie that isn't afraid to have some actual ghosts in it. Yeah. After setting up a tone of like you know because having a character whose thing is sort of debunking, you know, sort of fraudulent you know ghost folk. Yeah. So I mean, I should have said this at the beginning when you you asked me like what what ghoul shit slash pop culture shit yeah, I've sure. been into recently. But the, a bunch of movies I've been watching recently are of the 90s, that moment in the 90s where for a hot minute Sam Neill was a leading Hollywood man. Shit, yeah. And I watched In the Mouth of Madness yes, and, Event, and Event Horizon. Both of, And Sam Neill, I hadn't realized this because I'd never seen In the Mouth of Madness before and it had been years since I'd seen Event Horizon. But he functionally plays the same character in both. Side, which is, side note here, on, on uh, Rankin Biles' uh, letterbox, we have a list to uh, Sam Neill loses his shit. Yeah. These are both classics in the Sam Neill loses his shit genre. Yeah, but in both of these films, he is a guy who demonstrably sees that hinky shit is going on <laughs> around him, yeah. proceeds to gaslight everyone who is not him right. about it by saying, ah, oh, here is shitty explanation for Thing. Right. Um, to, to the detriment of himself and others until he eventually falls cackling into the abyss of, of, <laughs> of, of his own gaping anus like, yeah it's absolutely just, <laughs> which i love as a lesson don't fucking do that or else yeah. you'll get eaten by ghosts like yeah. it just it's, will happen but he's just like this gaslighting dickhead yeah and it, it's like if um the bit in a christmas story where scrooge is like you might be a blot of mustard or some undigested beef but for the length of the movie and then all of the ghosts kill him yes yeah um, whereas The Awakening has this really nice moment between the master, who is her love interest, and, and Florence mm -hmm. in the car where they're talking about how he he's more open to believing things than, than she is. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's this, I can't replicate it perfectly, but talking about, uh, you know, clinging onto the past. She's sort of saying, you know, you're, you're just trying to cling on to things. And he says, this is bold, you know, a bold claim for somebody who's carrying around another man's cigarette case, which it is. Yo. And it's this call out where you know, this is the whole reason that she's um, desperate and, and despairing over the idea of ghosts not being real is that she lost the man that she loved in the war. Right. But after having jilted him, she describes herself as having been very silly and very cruel and broke it off with him while he was overseas and then he died. And she's been carrying around the grief and the guilt from of this. Of course she has, yeah. Um, and this is why she's constantly look, trying to look for proof that there is something beyond the veil right. and then hurting herself over and over again with the knowledge that she's not finding it. Yeah, um, Yeah. so th this is a way that she can make herself feel shitty until the day she dies. Yeah, in this, it, and it's, it's directly paralleled, like, particularly in a scene 
in the ba- so she sees him in the bathroom like through a, cl- a crack in the wall where he's opening the scar on his thigh yeah uh, and then later she's in the bath herself and thinks she sees him watching her it's actually the ghost watching her through the wall but it's this yeah. parallel scene where she's in the bath after she's nearly tried to die chasing the the uh, cigarette case that she dropped in the water right. so it's the, these mutual forms of self-harm where he's doing the physical self-harm to his leg where she's doing this emotional psychological self-harm psychological right. self-harm of blaming herself and, and trying to chase this guy into the well, who she's lost into into the grave yeah um, well and, and also because I mean the self-mutilation and also like psychological self-harm it does serve a function like it gives you some kind of a release for feelings that you can't contextualize otherwise yeah and it's also it's a way to control the way that you hurt if you're feeling exactly. like I'm constantly being hurt by the world yeah um, but if I hurt me then I control how I'm hurt and, and then that, I can take care of it and, and then I open can, back you know I can I can do it on my terms if it's going to happen anyway yeah um, but the whole which is kind of like uh, watching horror movies actually yeah it's but, I mean that's that's healthy I mean it's you know we take control of things we can't control and that's how we learn to control how to control our reactions to them when they happen when we can't prepare for them right um but it's this the film is just so rich with grace notes like every time i've watched it like three or four times now and every time i go back to it like the fact that there's a thing there's a scene in it when she first gets to the house and um there's a big painting on the wall which is meant to look like uh well master says oh that's john the baptist you know, with his head coming off, she says, "No, that's Judas slaying Holofernes." Yeah. Um, which is a, a, that's a that's signposting you for the film as this is a tale of a woman Getting killing her rapist, basically. Yeah. When the story is, yeah, it's yeah. it's all of these little notes in it. It's yeah, I, I think it's one of those movies that like you every time you watch it, there's going to be something new that's going to pop out at you. Yeah, and it's I mean I've watched it the last two times because I, I showed it to you, but mm-hmm. like a few months. Well, sometime earlier in the year I'd showed it to another friend mm-hmm. and it's one of those I always feel like there are some narratives which are really good and they're so good that you can't watch them too often or they kind of wear out Yeah, and yeah, this yeah. is not one of those this is one of those where it's so good that you can keep re-watching it and re-watching it and it doesn't wear thin yeah I think uh, the movie Saw has diminishing returns because it's uh, <laughs> you know there, there's a reveal in it that's great it's not it's... solid uh, <laughs> ay. As, as I'm just like quietly sobbing into a hot pocket. Like, why, why would this happen? Um, a, so- a socket, sorry. <laughs> it's a sob pocket, so it's, it's a socket. Pause, I hate this. Um, okay. I have all of the. My, my dad is like a master of dad jokes, oh, and yeah. I've, I've inherited the pun. Excellent. The terrible pun. You, you come by it, honestly. Yes. Um, so, all right. So looking at the list, um, let's start with uh, the last movie we did uh, together on the podcast, which is The Orphanage at number 28. Uh, which do we th- which do we think is better, The Orphanage or The Awakening? See, I think they're both doing very similar things that I appreciate, mm-hmm. but I'm going to give a slight edge to The Awakening mm-hmm. because if there is... Um, if there is a failing with the orphanage, it's that I think it's not as hopeful. So the yeah. orphanage, the the, the the emotional catharsis of the orphanage is that the mother chooses to die 
to to stay with her with her ghost son. Right. Whereas the awakening is a direct rejection of that. Is that it's a mother trying to kill her Florence to stay with the ghost boy. So they're very parallel right. in that respect. Yeah. But she chooses to live, and it's this beautiful yeah. moment where she's saying, you know, the matron has tried to poison her, and she's saying, to little boy, ghost boy, I love you, and I've missed you my whole life now. That, but I but I can't I can't stay with you, and I need you to help me find the right. the antidote to the poison, which he which he does. Uh, and you still have this lovely moment at the end where you're not quite sure if she survived or not because right. you only see her talking to Martin. It's like, has she become another ghost? Right. And then you see another little boy talk to her and acknowledge her. And it's like, no, she has actually lived. But just you have that beautiful tension all the way through the last scene um, until you fuck. see... What am I seeing right now? And it's like, because she's walking through and you're seeing people talking about her but not to her. Yeah. And it's like, can they see her? Is she here? Are they just ignoring her because she's a woman and she's inconvenienced them? Or is she a ghost? Is she in this place? And that, that ending, I think, is, is that tension that carries through... And it's healing. It's it's a genuine healing as opposed to capitulation. Well, and that especially with the backdrop of World War One, like that there is life after this. There is some. There's a better way of life. There's catharsis. There's you know. There's a way of going forward. There's a way of going forward. Even if you're damaged and deeply fucked up, and you're you know you've had parts taken off of you. You can you can heal and you can go forwards, and I think that puts it above the orphanage for me. I think so too. Um, have you seen uh, the Wicker Man? I the 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 seventy three original, not the Nicholas Cage. I have not seen the seventy three original. It is on my list of things to see. Uh, have you seen Rosemary's Baby? I have not seen Rosemary's Baby. Have you seen Carrie? I have seen Carrie. Excellent. All right. So, uh, which which do you think is better, uh, Carrie or uh, The Awakening? So, again, also Carrie's like, a, a you know a divisive movie. So I understand Carrie's like, a divisive movie. Yeah. Again, I'm going to go with The Awakening, and it is for the same reason. The orphanage is that Carrie. The, the moral of Carrie is self-immolation, yeah. um, and it's this. It's a tragedy. Carrie is yeah. I, honestly, I'm prepared more to call it a tragedy than a horror movie it because, the, you know, the horror is the tragedy of what's done to her, yeah. and when she finally snaps at the end, she doesn't get. There's no healing from the abuse that she's endured. Right. Um, there is no happy ending or, or, yeah, or the, any healing for anyone. Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic movie, but the moral of it basically is that abuse makes you a monster and then you immolate and die. Right. Uh, whereas this is, abuse can be cyclical, but the cycle can be broken. And for right. that, like, personally, I have to put that above. Definitely. Above Carrie. Um, have you seen the uh, Fright Night remake from 2011? I have seen the Fright Night remake from 2011. Fuck yeah. Um memorable in many ways for David Tennant's early snake hips. Yep, snake hips and uh, leather pants. Snake hips and leather And that's, that's an interesting one, because that is another toxic masculinity Yes, and a film. rejection of toxic masculinity. Mm. And also, can we talk about how uh, Colin Farrell is pitch-fucking-perfect as Jerry Dandridge? He's so skeezy. He's so skeezy, and it's just like, he's predation incarnate. Like, he's just a, a skeezy, shitty vampire who's, you know, yeah. Yeah. It's... Um, I feel like I, I want to give the edge to Fright Night over over The Awakening, but I think it's just because I've seen it more times and I like the soundtrack better. That's fair. I, I'm, look, I'm honestly torn on it, because mm -hmm. granted, I haven't seen Fright Night 2011 for a while. Mm -hmm. I think I saw it in like 2012 or 2013, and I haven't seen it since. Mm -hmm. on, on this podcast um, especially, I, think, I, I feel like I bring it up a lot as a thing that I just really, really love. Honestly, like... As, because I remember I really liked it when I saw it and then I completely forgot about it is the thing until I was listening to the podcast and I heard you talk about it and I'm like yeah. have I seen this movie shit no wait I have seen this movie yeah. and it was really good and it all came flooding back to me yeah um, on that basis because it was around the same time like it, 2011 these are both 2011 movies mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, yeah, good point. And I saw The Awakening in 2011 and never stopped thinking about it. Like, that yeah. movie has been constantly in my consciousness. So would you say that you're haunted by it? A. A. Yeah. Uh, since then. Whereas Fright Night, I watched and I thought it was really good and I thought I had a really good comment on toxic masculinity and mm -hmm. then it just completely went out of my of my yeah. brain. It, it was it was like a really good cheeseburger on a road trip that you totally forget about as you're riding away. Yes, but as it is it is your list, I will defer to your judgment if you want to put it above or below. Okay. Um, I think the one right below that, all right, uh, have you seen The Blair Witch Project? I actually haven't seen Blair Witch, weirdly. Nice! I, you know, actually, I would love to get your take on Blair Witch. Also, yeah. for, in terms of, like, slow burn horror. Yeah. And really, like, subtle... Uh, understated horror that relies on atmosphere. Yeah, it was one of those. So, when I was a teenager, I did used to get scared shitless by horror movies. Oh sure. And I would still like watch them sometimes. But I, that one, I remember when it first came out, everybody was scared shitless by it. I'm like, yeah, yeah no, pass, because the ring freaked me out at that yeah. at that time. And I was, I was like, yeah, no, I'm not. Man, and I just never got around to watching. There's it. some kind of magic on Blair Witch Project, I think. Yeah. Like it's still even in 2019. Like you say the Blair Witch Project, and everyone kind of goes, yeah. And, yeah. But so so little actually happens in the movie, but it's done so well and so strategically that yeah. they do they they do so much heavy lifting with with so little stuff. And also without Blair Witch for the sort of found footage uh, horror movie, we would not have my favorite found footage horror movie, uh, Devil's Pass, about the Diet Love Pass. Yeah. Uh, thing which is amazing. Yeah, Devil's Pass is exceptional. Um, I feel pretty good uh, about putting. Um, because I think the Blair, I, I think uh, this is better than the Blair Witch Project, but maybe not as good for me as Fright Night twenty eleven. That's valid. So uh, does that sound good? Number twenty two. Yeah. All right. So coming in at our new number twenty two uh, is twenty eleven's The Awakening. Foz, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, where can our listeners find you on the internet? So I tweet as at Foz Meadows. F O Z Meadows is in a field. Um, <laughs> or several fields. Oh, it's several fields. Uh, I also blog at fosmeadows.wordpress. Uh, basically, you can just put fosmeadows into the internet machine. Not, will... not a lot of fosmeadows is... Yeah, uh, I write fantasy novels and I rant about things on the internet. Yeah, you do. And also, you uh, uh, are uh, a, a frequent participant in the Rankin Vile Discord channel. I am. Um, which also, I, I love our Discord channel. It's so good. It is. I, I, I also like that it's called, like, that the whole engine is called Discord because that just pings my Greek mythology nerd soul. It weirds me because I'm like, wait a minute, isn't the point of this people being in the same place and talking and communicating? And isn't Discord not that? Yeah, I feel like it's, it's sort of a. a Real irony, like if the goddess Eris existed, <laughs> she'd be she'd be annoyed, but right. also appreciative of the fact that it was annoying her. Yeah, which which is also yeah, nothing yeah. wrong with that. Um, rank and vile, uh, listeners, uh, you can find us on Twitter where we are never not shitposting at rank and vile cast. Uh, we are on Tumblr at just rank and vile and on Instagram at just rank and vile. Obviously, we weren't able to get to any uh, requests on this episode, but. Let's say you're sitting out there wondering when the fuck we are finally going to work our way around to doing Book of Shadows Blair Witch Project 2. Please do not do that. You're going to want to send that request to either rankandvilecast at gmail.com or drop it in our ask box on Tumblr. Uh, we are on Letterboxd. We are on, I, I guess, TikTok? We have a Discord. We are on Stitcher. We are on iTunes. Uh, we just all, all manner of places. Um, but I think that is about all we got. Thanks so much.